Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. It is a Friday, which is always a good thing. Woohoo! Happy Friday, everybody. Big weekend plan? Not a chance. Uh, oh, boy. Stay in and not spend any money. That's the goal. Sound like a new house owner. I, I might, I might go to the Minions movie though with my son. Go to see the Minions. I haven't seen, I haven't I'm a big seen Minions that. Minions guy. You are. I love the Minions. I yeah. do too. Yeah, I'm a big Minions guy. Uh, I think we're gonna, we're gonna go see uh, Bullet Train with Brad Ooh. Pitt. Well, I mean, it I, looks I, good. I, well, I mean, I don't, it's gonna be crap probably. But um, no. Yeah, he's I'll, a good actor. It'll probably be. I mean, it's. I just want. I like Brad Pitt as an actor, right? I, I like Brad Pitt, sure. so I'll go and see. I'll go and see a Brad Pitt movie. I mean, I'll go see it. It's I'm I'm prepared for nothing. It sounds like it's going to be. No, it just sounds like it sounds like it's going to be. It sounds like it's going to be fun. I don't I don't think it's going to change my life or anything. But uh, anyhow, looking forward to going and seeing Bullet Train. It sounds like it. <laughs> Boy, I really sold yeah, that. Why you did? You're right. I should yeah, really. I should just. With Jeff. I should really just get a van and and sort of oh, an inspirational talk, should. shouldn't I? Huh? Can you imagine me van? Oh yeah, there dress up like half, talk. half That'd be a great. suit with shorts. That'd be good. Oh yeah, do inspirational Why talk. Why not? I'd be good at that. Excellent. Anyhow, with that in mind, the yeah. Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> you nailed that. Well, I tell you what, I yeah. sold. I know how to sell stuff. The Toronto Blue Jays beat the beat, beat the Minnesota Twins. Don't Ooh. let it beat you. Beat the Minnesota Twins nine three last night. Your Twinkies, my Twinkies. Uh, their general manager, by the way, Thad Levine, will join us later on in the show. Nice. Uh, he always seems to do whenever the Jays play. He almost got the impression he likes us. I think he knows that I'm a Twins fan. I think he, I, he yeah, knows. I I, he knows I grew up a Twins fan. I got a Twins tattoo in my. Thigh. I don't want to see it, but no. do you really? Yeah, I'm a Twins fan, man. I'm a, yeah. Well, you have a tattoo? Just a small one. Just Shut a little, up. The little TC. You do not. It. Just a little one. It's right above the Rays one. Why would you tell people that? Just right above the Rays tattoo. Oh, my gosh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you're not. I am. You're I'm, not kidding. I am. It's I Tell know. the Truth Friday. No. You're I not kidding. I don't have, I'm just kidding. I don't have a Twins tattoo or, or a Rays tattoo. I don't. So you got some tight shorts on laying around the beach. Everybody can see your your nah, Twinkie and and raise up. First of tattoos. all, first of all, I'm not a tight shorts guy. Nobody over the age of sixty should be a tight shorts guy. I mean, you just shouldn't. So no, but no, I don't. Uh, I was just kidding. I don't. It's tattooed in my heart, Kevin. Just oh, like just like you. Sure, absolutely. Tattooed in my heart. Anyhow, the Jays beat the Minnesota Twins nine to three last night. A uh, what was the six run eighth? Am I close? I don't know. Something like they that. Won Anyhow, they had a big inning, six-run inning. They won 9-3. Vladdy hit a heat-seeking missile cool. for a home run. Bo Bichette had a couple of doubles. Uh, we learned this yesterday. One, 
Whit Merrifield at some point in the past couple of weeks was vaccinated. So all of those moralists out there who were worrying about Mitt Werf, Whit Merrifield, um, just you shouldn't have taken my advice. And before you jumped any conclusions, let's hear what the dude had to say for himself. He's vaxxed. He's going to join the team. Uh, he's going to join the team. Well, he's not with the team now. He'll be able to play in Toronto. So all of that, you know, Twitter angst was, as most Twitter angst, a complete total waste of your time and energy. Uh, Whit Merrifield got a couple of hits last night, starting in center field, get used to that, and uh, batting eighth. We talked about Whit Merrifield joining the team. We also learned that John Schneider, Kevin Barker, is not afraid to make moves with the lineup. We have gone, let's, let's think about this. We have gone from spring training where we knew, we knew that the organization, in air quotes, wanted Vladdy Jr. to hit second because it would get him extra at-bats. They couldn't sell him on it, allegedly. For whatever reason, it didn't happen. Was it they or was it the well, manager? Well, whatever, but whoever. They, it wasn't sold on Vladdy. Whoever was doing the sales pitch pooched it. So... John Schneider takes over as the second game as manager. Second game it was? Yeah. It was early. Vladdy into the second spot, Bichette into the fourth spot. Those of us who have always said that we think Bo Bichette is a cleanup hitter, I still think he's a cleanup hitter. Well, he didn't exactly take it, the mantle and run with it. Cleanup hitter strong. Okay. That's, he, anyhow, he didn't take, you know, he it didn't work in the cleanup spot. Or shall we say this? The team won, but I think there was a, there was, the team won with Bichette in the cleanup spot, but I think there was a sense that there was much more available to this team offensively. So now John Schneider yesterday moves Bo Bichette into the number five spot. Teoscar Hernandez moves up into the cleanup spot. So as I said, we've gone from basically two months of pretending that Vladdy Jr. shouldn't be hitting second to Vladdy Jr. hitting second and the guy who has kind of been Whose, whose role in the lineup has been thrown into flux is, is Bo Bichette. How much of that do you think, Kevin, is John Schneider knowing these two guys? I mean, he knows them. He's knowing them longer than anybody in this organization, pretty much. And yeah, how much of that do you think is is John Schneider, salesman? Or how much of that do you think is just, you know, I mean, Bo's a professional. Bo comes from a family, you know, from a baseball family, and Bo figuring out that, hey, I'm just not going to push back on this. I think it's the the first two and not the last one. I, I think if you if Bo was hitting, well, which he wouldn't be moving, obviously, but he hasn't been hitting, so it's not a it's not a a tough sell if you walk up to Bo and go, hey, you know, twenty games you punched out twenty three times, you ain't real good hitting in the cleanup spot. We're going to do some changing around here, move you around. It's not like they're moving him to the seven hole. Or, yeah. They moved him down one spot. You know, I, I, I don't want to say it takes pressure off because it doesn't change the fact of how they try and get him out. Now, it sure looked to me like yesterday to multiple parts of the strike zone, even when they weren't strikes, he was getting the barrel to the baseball. For whatever reason that is, maybe, maybe that's a I'll show you. Uh, maybe he worked on it a little bit more before the game. Whatever the case was, looked to me like if he's going to have that approach where I'm swinging, no matter where it's at, if I think I can get barrel to baseball, I'm swinging at it. Now, if you do that, you got to be real good with your lower half. Looked to me like yesterday, what was he out in front of a breaking ball? Mm -hmm. He took a, a two-strike pitch with a runner in scoring position to right center field. That will tell you 
that ball's a little up. The breaking ball was a little down. Uh, the single, I can't really remember where that was at, but it wasn't the same place as my point. He was covering multiple parts of the strike zone and getting barreled to baseball. So you could tell he had a little, he had a, he had a, had a little bit more vinegar in his approach with his lower half trying to get the barrel to baseball. I, I just look, look, it's I like that John Snyder says this is team oriented. I don't, you know, I, I appreciate that Vladdy feels rushed, but that's silly. It's better for the team if Vladdy's hitting second, which that's the most important part of all this. It's not really about Bo. It's about I'm going to put Vladdy in the two spot, and now I'm going to try and find a spot right, for Bo. But, but when you do that, you also you're right. It is about it is about it Vladdy. Absolutely, it, is. They, they wouldn't be doing this for for Matt Chapman. No it's question. about Vladdy. But you also these two guys have basically been joined at the hip, and that makes this decision I think a little more difficult. Because let's face it, I mean, let's face it, the the you know the race. Well, the race is I on. Guess. The race is on to see who's going to get the big contract first, or who's going to get the multi-year contract. We know who's getting. We it. know who is. But we do. We know. We know that. But that doesn't mean that Bo necessarily accepts that, right? It doesn't mean that he that he has to accept that. So I'm just saying this. I I think there's there's more involved in this decision Contracts than there would be with other players. And you know that as well as anybody. You've been around longer than most people, and have covered the Blue Jays for a very long time. It's performance driven. If you if you perform, unless you're traded. And that's a whole different conversation you can have in the offseason with Bo and what they need and what they're going to get if they did trade him. I, yeah, again, you, you got to ask long-term who's going to be here, who can maintain what they're doing consistently year after year, and everybody that's fingers pointed at Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Because Bo, you know, quite frankly, has some ups and downs with mechanics and what he wants to swing at and plate awareness and all the things that go into an everyday guy who wants to hit in the middle of the order, who wants to get paid like a middle of the order hitter. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Alec Manoa's game last night. Uh, just looking at his numbers, we saw a more effective slider than we've seen in recent starts. I think it's safe to say it was a more effective, or maybe, well, based on the the, the reaction of the twin hitters, it looked to be more effective. He was not afraid to go to it. Okay, how's that? That's good. And but at the same time, one of the things we saw in this game, and it's something that I've been keeping an eye on because coming out of the All Star break, Alec Manoa was very clear. You know, one of the things he did at the All Star break was pick the brain of Justin Verlander, which is a very good brain to pick, and one of the areas of focus was not just maintaining your velocity later into games, but increasing your velocity later in games. And one of the things we saw last night from, from Alec Manoa, I believe his last dozen, his, his 12 hardest thrown pitches were in his last two innings last night. Uh, he did get up to 96 on one occasion. I mean, he sat where he normally sits. So, first of all, Kevin, how important is that going to be for a guy like Manoa who wants to be a horse? He's not a five-and-fly guy. So, Alec Manoa wants to go, I would think, seven. At, at some point when next year when we're through innings and all that, Alec Manoa is going to want to give you seven and a third, seven and two. I mean, Quality he wants to be that guy. All the time. He wants to be that guy. Right. Quality starts. All the time. How important is it for a guy like Alec Manoa with his stuff to be able to hit 96 or even, even, well, I think 96 is probably the top end 
in his final inning of work. And how difficult is that going to be? Is it simply a matter? Because a lot of people are going to say, okay, so that simply means throwing less harder early in the game and then having more in the tank and throwing harder later in the game. It's more a matter of picking your spots, is it not? That's people that doesn't watch Alec Manoa throw. And he he's changed philosophy on how he tries to get hitters out. It's more two-seamer now. It's more sinker. He overthrows that and tries to throw that moving baseball, 95, 96, 97. It's not going to move the way he wants it to move. He can't control it. When it's straighter. This is the gives, sinker you're talking about. It absolutely about. is. So he's changed how he's trying to get through baseball games. And it's not the four-seamer elevated, trying to go away and use the tunneling slider off those pitches. He wants to now go sinker slider, right? Into a righty, away to a righty. He can do that both to lefties and righties with the with the two-seamer. But he has to have good mechanics, good finish, and good mile per hour on that pitch to be able to have the movement and the location that he wants so he can go deeper in games. That allows him to be able to not show the velocity on the four-seamer as much. So when he needs it late in the game and he needs to really go to it with a runner on third, bases loaded, whatever the case is, that now he's got it in the tank and it gives that Hit her a little element of surprise. Now, for me, he's got the invisible for whatever reason. I've never faced it, obviously, but you can really tell. His 92-93 plays higher up for whatever reason. He may he must hide it. Uh, it must have late giddy up to it, whether it's spin rate. For whatever reason, you can tell he doesn't need 96-97 is my point. Right. But it's nice to have it, and it's easier to have it because of the approach change that he's – He's evolving himself into, okay, if you need me all season, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be able to do it because I'm a big man. Conditioning's just going to be real hard for me from pitch one to just but see, max here's the thing. Everybody mechanics. talks. Okay, I want to jump in here because all I hear from guys, I hear two things. One, big guy, lots of moving parts, going to wear down because yeah, he's a big guy. Me. Two, big guy, boy, he's just big, strong guy, uses mm. his lower half, so... You don't have to worry about fatigue with this guy. What is it? What is it? Do you worry about fatigue because he's a big guy or do you not worry about fatigue because he's a big guy? Because I keep hearing two things from people. <laughs> Again, who are you hearing that from? Like, you you, you got to hear it from people that's around him that can tell you how he bounces back from his start. How's he look the next day? When he's out throwing his little mm-hmm. side flat ground, I think he throws his side maybe the third day so he can have a day, and then he pitches the next day. So he's got a, a room, some room there to recover from what he goes through from his start. So it's all about who you're talking to here. Yeah. Like anybody can just go, look, big dude can weigh on things, and he should be able to muscle his way through games, and an entire season doesn't work that way. Like conditioning, arm strength, your lower half, mechanically, mechanically sound all the time he's not. We we can agree on that. He has glove jerk to the first base side. His landing point, because all the time he doesn't get it out in front and finish it, that's why you see him now occasionally with the sinker. And if I'm hitting off him, what do I think? I'm trying to stay inside the baseball. I want to hit hit it up the middle. So if you're a pitcher and you've made that adjustment, now you have to be able to Defend your position. Yeah, don't get I have hit. to don't be, be better. Hit. Don't at, be getting hit in your bicep all the time. I can't yeah. spin and fall around and spin myself and leave my elbow and my backside open because hitters are going to have to make adjustments. They they know I, if 
I, I can't get out in front and out and around that thing because I'm going to either not hit it hard, I'm going to pull it foul, I fall behind, and now all of a sudden he can expand, and now he's starting to throw a few more change-ups because it's later in the season, the word's out of what he's throwing, so he's trying to make adjustments that way. He's not a finished product. Mm. That's why what he does now is so impressive. You even see him in big spots. It's the first time I've seen him do this all year. He took his hat off. You could tell. He closed his eyes. He's saying something to himself, like – Sort of like a checklist mm-hmm. of I know it's crunch time. I know I'm you know I'm I'm laboring a little, you know, in an inning or two. Like the command's not there. The arm side command we're up in a way where it's probably opening up. The the lower half's opening up too soon. I'm not finishing. My arm's lagging behind. Could be tired. Some whatever reason. So he's got a little checklist. First time I've really seen him do that. He's deliberate about it. Like he didn't really care if people were seeing him do right. it. That will tell you that he's put a lot of thought into this. Like, he knows when it's not going right how to – I talk about this with Jose Barrios all the time. As many starts as he's had, why does he not know how to self-correct quicker? He should know how to do that. For whatever reason, he doesn't. He needs the coach, the catcher, to actually help him get through it. Alec Manoa seems to be the guy that will – knows enough about himself, has talked enough to enough Verlanders of the world to know that if something's not right – how do I get back into it and I can tell myself, I can take my hat off, I can put my hat over my face, I can close my eyes, and I actually think it through and I can see it. Now, if I do it right, this is what it's going to look right. And if I do it right, there's no chance that dude's getting a hit. So it's it's just cool to see him evolve into all these kind of things and try and turn himself into a dominant, uh-oh, we have to face Alec Manoa in game one or two. Like, it's getting to where – because whenever I played and the conversations were, you figure out how to get one hit off of that guy. So when you face this guy and that guy the next couple days, you can make your living off those two guys. Wallach Manoa's turned himself into that one guy. What did you make of Whit Merrifield yesterday? Hitting eighth, playing center field. As I said, I think we're going to see Whit Merrifield in – I think it may may have been Tabby that made the point. Whit Merrifield is going to be an everyday player for this team. It's just going to be in a different position. But I, I fully expect we'll see him in the lineup an awful lot. Now, maybe it's center. Maybe it's second base, depending on, on, on Santiago Espinal. Could be in the outfield as well. But I, I think it's, look, George Springer DH'd yesterday after having four days off. Basically, that would indicate to you that there's not a great, a, a real likelihood we're going to see him in center field an awful lot this year. Or in the outfield for that matter. Maybe. Yeah, that's uh, look, you can tell when George swings and misses, he really hurts. It's not all the time when he's making contact. You can tell when he makes contact and it sort of takes pressure off the extension. It's when he stops, the ball is right? Hitting the the swing, no, I think it's because when stops. he misses, it's just it's not free and easy. And for whatever reason, that tends to seems to hurt his his elbow a little bit more than when he makes contact. So that would tell you, hey, when you swing Make sure you do it with some authority and, and you're swinging at the right pitch so you so don't you, swing and miss as much. You got one or two bullets and it's bad. Them. Make sure you use them to the wisest. Well, I, it's Look, Witt Whit is, I don't want to say professional hitter because that's, I don't even know really what that means. He, he He understands, I think he, because he's been around as long as he has, he understands what makes him tick which is let the ball travel, think up the middle the other way. He can hit velocity, it looks like. We saw that last night. Uh, He can battle with two strikes, which is a big deal. Uh, He can play multiple positions. He's not going to 
hurt your team if he's playing center, if he's playing right, if he's playing second. He's probably I don't want to say he's an upgraded second because Santiago Espinal defensively is a is a is a big deal. So yeah, it's it's, it's this gives John Snyder a a you know a, a weapon that he can use whenever he needs to give a a day, a, guy, a guy a day off. And I'll say this: if Witt's hitting. He's going to play somewhere. Like, they'll they'll find a position for him, especially if he's playing at the bottom of the order. That adds more length to your lineup. That makes it harder for, you know, a pitcher to maneuver around certain guys who are hot. Like, Lourdes, how do you pitch around him if Witt's hot, if Matt Chapman stays hot? Like, it just makes it harder for a, a pitcher to not let certain guys beat you when he's hitting. And it's a, it's a, it's a, nice, it's a nice little... It's not a finishing piece because they really do need more more pitching. Right. But it's a nice little offensive and defensive piece that can fit in nicely. I know he's right-handed. You wish he was left-handed and could do things that he's doing now right-handed. I guess you can't have everything. One of the fun things in this job is coming in early in the morning, watching Barker, watching the MLB network, and reacting to everybody's home runs. And mm. uh, You like home runs are great. You liked Vladdy's home run last night, didn't you? I, I I do because of how you could tell how much hard how hard he's been working on his lower half. You you can see that you can see when when he takes a pitch, how he he lands, how his timing is, how he thinks if he lands a certain way. Early in the season, he was opening opening up too soon, and that's why all the things away. I don't like that he's added you know the the ball down that he's tried to add right. an uppercut. <clears throat> so it's silly. Don't do that. You're Vladimir Guerrero Jr. You annihilate baseballs by hitting the center of the baseball, not the bottom part of it, not the top part of it, because I level my swing out and I hit the bottom part of it and I hit the ball so hard because I have hip rotation better than most humans on planet Earth that that's why the ball goes where it ultimately goes. I just like that now he's starting to land closed. When I land my front foot close, you can't see my feet My feet if I'm on TV here, but when I land close, you can even see, even though you can't see my lower half, you can tell if I land open, look where my front side goes. It's going to go where my bottom, where my front foot goes. If I land, it's like Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. lands with a closed front side. He does that because he has long limbs and he doesn't want them to get far away from his body. So it's going to follow, his upper half will follow what his lower half does. So if he lands closed, that means the long limb will stay close to his body and he can stay inside baseballs and hit that thing all over the field. Vladdy's no different. He's tried to make adjustments to the ball away. He doesn't want to make adjustments with what he does with his hands, his load, his second load, but he can make it by landing close with his lower half. And if he drives that front shoulder, which adds length and keeps the barrel in the hitting zone a long time, that will help him swing at strikes. And when he swings at strikes to use, I'm not saying the whole field, because he's, he's not a right field line guy. He's a right center to left field guy. But just by making that little adjustment and getting in hitters' counts, and when you think that and you're good with your lower half and you can recognize, even in a 3-1 count, a breaking ball, I've said this and I'll continue to say it, he's the best right-handed hitter in baseball because of what he does. I know his season's been up and down and he's been trying too hard. He's 23 years old. He's having a really good season. You look at his numbers. He's doing things that he's supposed to be doing. But it's that hip turn. When the foot hits the ground, just the torque and the force he gets when he's turning his hips, for me anyway, second to none.
The Minnesota Twins were one of the most active teams at the trade deadline. They did a lot of good business. Tyler Molly, Jorge Lopez uh, joining them. Michael Fulmer, who a lot of us thought would be with the Blue Jays, and even picking up Sandy Leone, a veteran catcher. Um, they did so while just almost everybody else in the Central Division, well, they did for the I think they all stood pat in the Central Division, including the, the two teams that are most likely to challenge the Twins this year for first place, the Cleveland Guardians and the Chicago White Sox. So how different was this trade deadline? It is, after all, the first trade deadline uh, with an expanded playoff format. It's also the first trade deadline under the new CBA. So those post-deadline trades you used to see every year, those aren't going to happen this year. You can claim a player on waiver still and everything like that, but... Uh, those 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 post deadline trades you used to see, they won't be allowed this year. They can't happen. Did that change the approach at the trade deadline? What was the Minnesota Twins' approach at the trade deadline? Where do they go from here? The Twins have three more games left against the Jays. Thad Levine is their general manager. He'll join us next. It's Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Sportsnet 360, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Eight ten will be the first pitch tonight. The Twins and the Blue Jays are the second of their four-game series at Target Field in Minneapolis. Jays 9-3 winners last night. It was kind of a cool vibe at that game. At least it came through in the TV. Uh, sellout crowd, lots of fans, lots of Jays fans. That's Sonny Gray with the taco meat hanging out of his... <clears throat> he's one of those guys that doesn't wear an undershirt. So you got the taco meat hanging out. You know, you undo the button and you got the... What's the taco meat? The chest there. Taco meat. <laughs> the taco meat. That's absolutely what it is. Absolutely. That's what we used to call it. (laughs) Taco meat? Yeah. Tuck in the taco meat, Slick. That's what we used to say. That sounds like an AJ. That sounds like an AJ Burnettism to me. Nah, nah, you can't come up with that. Yeah, you know, you you get really hot and you don't want to wear an undershirt, so you so you unbutton it to like halfway. You let you let some air flow in there. (laughs) I have never heard of chest hair referred to as taco meat. That's so good. I'm writing that. (laughs) I'm writing it down. That's your next article on Sportsnet.ca. No. Taco mate. But it will <laughs> it will uh it will be mentioned, trust me. So this is a thing though. People actually Absolutely. this isn't a barker. This is taco meat, okay. Anyhow, uh yeah, eight ten first pitch tonight. As uh Tyler Molly will be making his first start for the twins since he was you're quite proud of yourself, aren't you? Since he what? was since he was acquired at the about? deadline. Well, you just are. You got first of all. You got that smile. Well, I mean, I've been, face. I've been, I've been waiting to use that. And and I, it's rare that you see a guy, especially pitchers, who don't wear an undershirt. And Sonny Gray's one of those people that let it breathe. <laughs> let that, you know, unbutton that thing. Let okay. it, let it breathe a little. All right, all right. Uh, and as I said, Tyler Molly will be making his first start since uh, the trade deadline. He was one of the. Minnesota Twins trade acquisitions, uh, Tyler, Tyler Molly, Jorge Lopez, Michael Fulmer, Sandy Leone. And I found the Tyler Molly 
acquisition particularly interesting. First of all, you know, the, we saw some pitchers when Luis Castillo went off the board that, and Frankie Montas, that kind of left Tyler Molly as, as the, the guy out there. But it's also interesting because we're led to believe that the Minnesota Twins have kept an eye on him and have been, have been interested in him for a while. And I'm always intrigued when you talk to general managers about how much of the acquisition of a player happens, you know, after, how much work goes into it. In other words, it's not just you get the ID at the trade deadline, we need this guy. I think in a lot of cases, trades come about as a result of previous discussions. So um, at least that's the way I've I've always envisioned it. Let's uh, ask the man himself. Thad Levine is uh, senior VP and general manager of the Minnesota Twins. He joins us on Blair and Barker. Thad, thank you so much for doing this. Always, always good of you to take time. We trust that you're keeping well. I, I wanted to ask you about the Tyler Molly deal because I was under the impression that he was a pitcher that the Twins were interested in for a while. And, and I'm just wondering... Because I think a lot of people, and I will admit myself as well, sometimes I think we fall into this trap that at the trade deadline, 48 hours before the deadline, a general manager says, I got to go and get this guy. Now, that may happen, but I also think a lot of pre-work goes into it, doesn't it? And I, I'm wondering if in Tyler's case, it was a result of perhaps previous discussions you'd had with the Reds. Uh, I, I think you actually nailed it right there. It's most of these acquisitions we make, we're really playing the long game. Sometimes, you know, it takes two or three trade cycles as defined as off seasons and trade deadlines before you actually land the player. It's very rare that a player just kind of falls into your lap on a first conversation or a first reach out. So Tyler Malley was a guy that we had been pursuing for quite some time. Last off season, we talked to the Reds in, in earnest about uh, Luis Castillo, Tyler Malley, and Sonny Gray, we were able to acquire Sonny Gray at that time, and then subsequently we were able to get Tyler Malley. So th these were conversations that really dated back probably 18 months, uh, and then we've been laying the groundwork, and every time we reached out to Cincinnati, uh, diplomatically and gracefully, we said if you're willing to talk about your starting pitching, we still have interest. And the good news is they really valued our prospects as well, and so we were able to work out a deal. See, I would think, too, that this – you talked about the prospects. I, I've often wondered when – you know, when an organization talks to another organization about a trade and a trade gets made, there is a lot of intelligence uh, or due diligence that that occurs that maybe doesn't manifest itself in that trade, but might a year later, right? Like, you know, you may have done a deep dive. I'm sure the Jays did it or the, the Oakland Athletics did a deep dive into the Jays minor league system when they acquired, when the Matt Chapman deal was happening. And all that information is still, the A's still have that. If they want to talk to the Jays about another trade, they've already done a little bit of the groundwork. Yeah, I, I think fans would be surprised to see, uh, you know, probably close to 19 out of 20 trade discussions don't actually materialize in a trade. But my view of the, of the is, Exactly what you said. You're, you're trying to gain intelligence as to players that that team may like in your organization that could help craft a future deal. Furthermore, I think you're trying to understand the pressures that that general manager is feeling with regards to ownership and the fan base and, and the manager in the clubhouse. And so you're trying to understand how you can best present something to that, that general manager. Because you believe it or not, we're really trying to execute win-win trades. You know, I, I want to be able to continue to work with all 29 clubs the only way to do that is to be able to provide them with talent in return for the talent they're providing us. And, you know, ultimately you, 
you want to win the deal, but by a skosh, not by a landslide, because otherwise that cuts off your ability to do business in the future. So the whole game is about scouting. I think fans are used to us understanding a scout watching three shortstops and then ranking them one, two, and three. But part of our jobs as general managers is scouting the other general managers to understand their tendencies, what types of deals they feel comfortable doing, what type of value they want in return. And then ultimately, as you just illustrated, what types of players they specifically like in your organization, such that when you make the next presentation to them, it's as, as attractive as possible. Does change of scenery go into how you go about acquiring a certain player like, like Tyler and, and Fulmer and Lopez and not, not coming from not real good teams. You think change of scenery or is it all about how good that player is? And that's, you know, if, if they're good, they're going to pitch well or, hit well no matter where they go. You, you know, I, I think we do still use the term change of scenery, but I, I, but I do believe we're probably a little bit more sophisticated in why we think a change of scenery would be helpful. I think there's some extreme cases, uh, you know, there, there are some situations where players don't seem to be thriving in specific markets. You know, we've long heard of that in some of the biggest markets in the game, which are just really challenging for some players to thrive in, that just a simple change of scenery may alleviate some of the stresses and strains that they're feeling, and they may return to their previous level of play. But I think when we're looking at a change of scenery, specific to some of the players you mentioned, we, we look at how the player's being used by, by their team. We look how, may, maybe in a pitcher's case, the usage of some of the pitches, are, is their ability to change some of the usage pattern to enhance the player's ability to succeed? And if we believe in that, then I think the change of scenery really has some grounding to it where we're trying to be a little bit more thoughtful when we say change of scenery, just not to hope that if the player does the exact same things in a different uniform, he'll do better. But rather, if we actually have a plan for him where he could really change something about what he's doing on the field that could really enhance his ability to succeed. In those cases, I think those are changes of scenery that we're really trying to pursue. That in a lot of, in the cases of a couple of divisions, the you know, the, the race for first place is really not much of a race anymore. Um, I mean, Houston and, and, uh, and, and the Yankees are, seems to be pretty clear sailing. Uh, and I'm wondering if that plus the expanded playoffs and, you know, the, the change in the CBA as it relates to those, those post waiver or those post trade line trade deadline deals we used to, to see, has that, did that create a different environment uh, around this deadline, like when I saw the acquisition of Sandy Leone, for example, I wondered if that wasn't maybe a deal that might have been made in previous years post-deadline. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the, 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 the dynamic has changed for front offices now. Uh, before you had the trade deadline, which was really when the lion's share of trades took place. But as you guys know from monitoring the game for a long time now, there were some really exciting players moved in, in the month of August by way of trade waivers. And there was a lot of gamesmanship and, and we were all monitoring that on a daily basis of who should we place a claim in on? And, you know, could they just assign the contract to you or is their ability to acquire a player? You know, Justin Verlander recently mm -hmm. being one of the more famous guys acquired that way. And, and, you know, those are such unique ways to really enhance your team. So you really have to think ahead. And so when, when Ryan Jeffers suffered a, a hand injury that required surgery and he was, one of our featured catchers, and he was really on a nice run. I, and we knew we were going to lose him for four to six weeks. We, we heretofore had not thought about mining the, the catching list of, of potential trade targets. We all of a sudden had to shift our attention and do just that. And as you referenced, since we knew we weren't going to be able to necessarily add somebody after August 2nd, we accelerated those conversations. We were able to acquire Sandy Leone, a, a, pitch, a catcher who we think 
helps helps the pitching staff out, does a really nice job in game calling. He's got some experience behind the dish, and the fact that he's a switch hitter really helps us. Is, is it hard to not look at what other teams are doing, like the White Sox, like Cleveland, you know, the two behemoths in the American League and the Yankees and the Astros, sort of the Blue Jays? Well, you know, we like to play armchair GM all the time and think, well, would you really do that, give up that because of how you don't match up against the big two teams in the American League? Is it hard not to do that? Oh, I think you, you've got to constantly be looking at your competition. And, you know, one thing that I think the, the game's afforded us recently is a really much more sophisticated look at, at how you do match up. Uh, you know, there's all these uh, national pundits who are reporting, uh, you know, statistics that would indicate whether or not you have a chance to win your division or, or win once you get in the playoffs. I think for the Minnesota Twins right now, you know, you referenced uh, the, some of the behemoths in the American League. We're, we're blessed moment in time not to have them in our division. Mm -hmm. And as much as the West and East seem to have some real separation at the top, you know, it's a dogfight in the American League Central. And so for our market, we, we are very desirous of trying to win our division and put ourselves in the best position to excel once in the playoffs. So we were trying to make moves that uh, really, first and foremost, put us in a better stead to win our division. But then once you get in the playoffs, you know, we, we do believe we've got a lot of talent, and in a shortened series, we may be able to surprise a few teams. And so that was really our focus. But I think we're constantly looking at it and trying to stay as objective as possible because for a team like Minnesota, which is not too different from Toronto, Toronto's got a little bit of a bigger payroll. But even in Toronto, I think they think this way, which is you are trying to win today without sacrificing the ability to win tomorrow. We, we aspire to have a window that's open beyond just one season. So we try not to do too much harm to the future while trying to help the present. And that's why our focus was more on players that we knew we would control past this year. And Tyler Malley and Jorge Lopez in particular were two guys that will have passed this year. So they won't just impact this one playoff race. They'll also impact future playoff races. Uh, Thad, I'm wondering, Carlos Correa, now you've had him for a little more than half a year. Um, what has that relationship been like? How important has he been? He certainly seems to have been important to that, not just to the team on the field, but in the clubhouse as well. And I mean, are you are you confident that that you'll be able to bring him back next year or that that, you know, this relationship will extend a little longer, perhaps? So, you know, I think we had heard so much about Carlos. I think his performance over his career obviously spoke for itself. But you don't really know a player until you, you actually are in a locker room with him. And truly from the minute he walked into our locker room in spring training, he's, he's really elevated and transformed our team uh, from a challenging our coaches to do different things to enhance our preparation for a game to really challenging some of our advanced scouting processes. And then, to, you know, personally, you know, working with some of our players and, and educating them as to ways to, to become more championship caliber type players. And that really almost happened from, from day one, and it's only intensified since that time. It's really been a, a really fortuitous relationship, and that doesn't even speak to what he's done on the field and what we know he's going to do down the stretch here in helping us uh, hopefully prevail on the American League Central. So the relationship with Carlos has been excellent so far. Uh, we, we couldn't be more appreciative of what he's done, you know, both both in our clubhouse but also on the field and you know, probably to a third extent in our community. So the relationship's been excellent so far. We, we've really enjoyed our time with Carlos. You, you know as well as anybody how what you think of your minor league system, what the Blue Jays think of their minor league system, and so on and so forth. But can you use this time of the year to find out what other teams think of your minor league system? I, I think I think what you're talking about there is a really, really important point, which is, you know, we spend a lot of time 
using uh, systems and analytics to evaluate the, the true value of prospects, both both the Toronto Blue Jays prospects, the Minnesota Twins, and really every every other team's prospects as well. Uh, and we, we have scouts who evaluate our prospects, and they set up ranking lists, and they submit them to us, and we, re- we take those to heart. But it really isn't until you get on the phone with other general managers and talk about trades that you really understand the true value of your players. So as much as we may like a player in our system, I, the, 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 the league really tells you the value of those players when they indicate what types of players you can access if you were to trade them. So I think we certainly are grounded in our analytics in terms of how we evaluate our, our own players. But really the feedback we get from the league, which is centrally done at the trade deadline and in the offseason, is so vital and so important. And we've actually now, you know, informed our models to, to improve, be improved based upon asks from other teams, especially the teams that we think are doing a great job of evaluating talent. So we get a ton of feedback at this time, and we ended up trading a handful of our prospects, all of whom we really liked a lot. But we got additional information on probably another dozen or two dozen players in our system, which will really help inform our decisions moving forward. Dad, listen, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. As always, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, guys. Take care. It's Thad Levine, Senior VP and GM of the Minnesota Twins. And that's, you know, as we, we talked about, we, we've talked about this a lot with, with, minor, with minor league systems. You really, the value of your minor leaguers is what the other teams think. No question. And, and that's, that's why I always, we were talking, you were talking about Gabriel Moreno and the number. That's why I always said that is a great talking point and there is a value to it. But we're at a time now, you know, Ross Atkins and other GMs talk about future value and they've got a, you know, there are algorithms that can forecast what a guy's value might be as a major league player and all. It's just, it's prospect rankings are, are, are great for talking points. They're not entirely inaccurate. I'm, I'm not saying that, but it gets back to, if Jordan Groshans is your fourth-ranked prospect and somebody else, pick a guy, pick a guy. Otto Lopez is ranked below him. If I'm a team talking to the Jays about a trade and I'm saying, yeah, I don't like Jordan Groshans. I want Otto Lopez. What does it matter where the guy's ranked? If we're going to make a deal and you're saying you got to pick, you can pick one of our infielders, I'm going, I want Otto Lopez. Well, it doesn't matter whether Jordan Groshans is ranked fourth or Otto Lopez is sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth. And that's why I always, I don't like to get in the game when trades are made and people say, well, okay, San Diego traded their first 12th, 15th prospect for this. So if the Jays had traded their first 12th, 15th prospect, mm-hmm. they would have had that deal. Well, no, that doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily how it works out it's just something to keep in mind that's i i I said last year we talked to this isn't isn't a trade secret both ross and mark said last year after the trade deadline what really surprised them or one of the things that really surprised them was how much people asked about arelvis martinez now they knew arelvis martinez was a good prospect but as that said, when you've got an organization whose scouting department you admire calls you up for a deal and spends 20 minutes talking about Aurelvis Martinez, mm-hmm. if you don't make the deal, perhaps you hang up the phone and you go, 
Jesus, the Dodgers really like our Elvis Martinez. What is that? You know, what does that say about how good he is? So it's it's I'm, I'm I'm always interested in how these guys go about their business and and um and I think maybe because we live in a world of fantasy sports, we just assume it's we assume it's the same thing, and it's not. How would a GM take that too? If you if you call a GM that you respect. And he says that, you know, I like your first four guys you got in your organization, but everybody else I'm not big fans of. How would a GM handle that? Like, is it is it a gut punch to say, uh, you know, man, we don't have a ton of depth yeah. and, and you know, the, the packaging is going to take the top four and then there's everybody else? And how do you fix it? Or do you say, ah, oh, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about? So how, how do you, you have handle to be, it? There's a... I think you have... It's, it's funny because I asked Alex... <clears throat> we've had Alex on, and Alex has talked about this. I think every GM has another guy that they bounce things off of. Mm-hmm. Like Alex always talks about Billy Bean as being a guy that he will bounce something off of. And I think you'd have to be... I think you'd have to be unrealistic to not assume that there are deep personal relationships between GMs and that there's a trust there. You know, Alex is looking at, maybe Alex is looking at, at, at dealing for, for Rysel Iglesias and he's got all this information and all this, but maybe Oakland is somebody who's seen him more because he's in the same division. I'm sure there are things Alex would say, hey, look, you know, Billy, you know, we're thinking of doing this. I mean, what is your read on this guy? What are your guys saying about him? I'm sure that goes on. You got to trust the guy. I'm not saying you would just sort of willy-nilly pick up the phone and call any GM. Sure. But I'm sure there are like GM channels there. And and probably with agents as well where you you collect as much information you as you can. Can't teach experience. You have to have experience and have have had experiences with these people that will tell you that if you ask the questions and they give the answer whether you like it or not, and w- you trust them enough to to take it to heart and Go from there. So it's an it's an interesting it's interesting to hear GMs how they handle smaller market teams because you know you you want to take nothing and turn it into something. How do you do that? And how do you go about doing it? And it's relationships and and trust and getting conversations back and forth about your organization that you may not like. And it's just interesting to hear how they how they go about it and how they take it to heart and how you learn things and what you need to adjust. So we talk about players making adjustments all the time. GMs are no yeah. different. Presidents are no different. It's just interesting to see how how organizations, how they handle their organizations and the way, they're, the, the way their big team has benefited from it, which the, is a big deal. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, talking about Alex, I was, I was thinking about one of the things Alex mentioned last year, and this relates to Whit Merrifield, is um, the idea that because you are trading, because you are GM of a team that is a likely playoff team, there's two things he said. One, you don't want to get somebody in that the manager can't use. And that's something else that we're, we're, we, we may be, I mean, I'm certainly admit, I'll admit I'm probably guilty of that, right? Every player, the grass is always greener. The grass may be greener, but if there's no place for the grass to grow in this team, what the hell's the point of having? I mean, Alex made that point. You, you know, you you don't just bring somebody in and then have your manager go, "This is great. I got no chemistry's a big I got deal no too." Use for you look guy. at the Brewers, <clears throat> and, and you're hearing, you know, Devin Williams yeah. come out and say that, "What what are you doing? Why are you but, doing this?" So there's that chemistry. You got to have a good manager, a good salesman, 
You got to have everything work in the way it's supposed but to be working thing, if you do make money. And the other thing Alex said that I think relates to Whit Merrifield is sometimes you don't look at what the guy has done all year. You look at what he's done in the last month because you want to trade for a guy who is, especially when you're looking at guys who have track records, you want to trade for a guy who's coming off a good run. And Whit Merrifield is probably playing at the time of the deal was playing the best baseball he'd played for Kansas City. Sure. I think he was hitting something like sure, two, yeah. 280 in a month or something mm-hmm. like that. And that is also another factor, that there's there's a value to bringing a guy in. Like we always joke, but it's true. Nobody, nobody really likes to have a project dropped in their lap on August 2nd. Mm-mm. You know, you want a project, let's do it in spring training. Off-season. Like, off yeah, let's do it in the off-season. Mm-hmm. Now, that's why I wonder, this is a horrible second guess, but that's why I wonder if the best thing for the Blue Jays wouldn't have been to just leave you, say, Kikuchi in the bullpen at the start of the year and try to figure out whatever the hell was going on. And then maybe, then maybe go from there. You know, who knows, create a neck injury for him, send him down to the AAA, let him have a couple of starts, bring him up. But that's another thing that must be said. Is when you're making an acquisition, you try to get guys who are, and that's what Alex did last year with 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 the Braves, try to get guys that are, joining your team, you know, and 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 they have contributed in the other team and are are joining your team and feel good about themselves. Like it's pretty clear. You saw Whit Merrifield in the interviews he did with Hazel and the interviews his media availability yesterday. You really got the impression the guy feels pretty good about himself. Which is good. Confident. Yeah. Play where you want him to play. Going to give you an at bat that you need. And the guys guys realize you can't fool baseball players. Guys realize Guys realize when a guy is selling something that's real and when it's BS. Performance driven. Yeah. Uh, Jason Stark is the Athletics National Baseball columnist. He's also the mayor of Starkville. It's a terrific podcast he and Doug Glanville do. And uh, lots of good insight and uh, lots of really funny, really funny tidbits. It's no surprise that Jason Stark's post-trade deadline column is a must-read. It's full of lots of good information, lots of Otani talk. I want to talk to Jason about that. He'll join us next. It's Blair and Barker on 590-360, the Sportsnet Radio Network, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Taco meat? Yeah, tuck in the taco meat, Slick. <laughs> 